Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Christ in Focus. Today, I'm your host, John Frederick, Christian author and lead photographer for 7-Eleven. If this is your first time with us, I want to welcome you. Whether through our podcast, our photography, or our writing, we hope to help and inspire you in your walk with Jesus Christ. In the podcast description, you'll always find a link to this podcast in writing, along with the photography that inspired this message. So if you're interested, check it out. So on that note, let's jump right in and get started. So today is a little like New Year's for Christian bloggers and podcasters. Easter is such an important time because we get to reflect on our Christianity. We get to think about what made us Christians in the first place, the acts and the sacrifices that went into who we are as Christians. And then we get to look at what we're doing for God and maybe even reevaluate, make our resolutions. So I'm really excited to bring our Easter devotional. What we're going to do is look at what was Jesus like? A lot of people, you know, they know Jesus, they, they worship Jesus, but they don't really know the person behind the messages and the miracles. And then there's those that question his existence in the first place, say that he was almost like a fairy tale, just something that we rally behind. Of course, that's not true. So we're going to go into proofs of of Jesus's life, proofs and scientific data that goes into why he is the Messiah. And then, of course, we're going to go into his life from his childhood to his ministry and just learn some, some fun facts that help us understand the individual, and get a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you're part of our blog at 711photography.com, of course you spell out the 7, leave the 11. You know that this is our latest blog, so we're kind of going out of order. Kathleen and I thought that it would be really important to do this one on time because Easter is that time where we're really thinking and and contemplating where we're going to go from here, we get so many messages and divine inspiration. And so it's important to put all that in perspective and maybe use this particular podcast to help initiate or ignite the fire behind your, um, your encouragement. Let's go ahead and get started. The first question is, who is Jesus Christ according to the Bible? What was he like as a person? Is there proof he existed? What was Jesus Christ's purpose on earth? How do we know he is the Messiah? Now, I know as Christians, you know, you may be like, I'm just going to go ahead and turn this off now. I know all this stuff. Well, we're actually going to go a little deeper and go into historian studies and things like that as well. So don't be surprised if you hear something that you just didn't know. And, you know, that just builds that relationship with Jesus Christ. And it helps us understand the man behind the mission, who exactly we are following. We know in our hearts and we're led by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. But at the end of the day, we should always strive to know more. I know that you've heard. You've either asked these questions or you've heard someone ask these questions. So whether you're currently a Christian or only researching what Christianity is all about, these are totally understandable questions to ask. As human beings, we gain confidence in tangible things. Of course, you know that isn't how faith works, but it is completely normal in the beginning to question something that is so difficult to understand and it just seems so supernatural to you. So as Easter approaches, and we enjoy all the budding new flowers and the young children hunting eggs, let's dedicate 2022 to a more intimate look, a more intimate relationship with the man who walked the earth and had the sole purpose of just loving mankind. 
So first we're going to go into what was Jesus like as a person here on earth? So in his childhood, there's very little known about Jesus. However, you know, historians can shine light on what it would have been like based on their knowledge of his culture in the first century. We know from the Bible that he worked with his father and was often referenced as the carpenter's son. So he probably knew the carpentry trade very well. If you've ever done carpentry, you understand that Jesus probably understood what hard work was was about. He would have attended the Nazareth synagogue school around age five or six was pretty typical. There he would have learned to read, to write, and he would have recited uh, Old Testament scripture. And honestly, the what we now call the Bible, but the Old Testament scrolls would have really been the only textbook that he would have had until he was about age 10. That just shows that he would have solely focused on God's word. We know that, of course, that he had at least six siblings, four brothers, two sisters, with whom he spent most of his youth. And of course, he would have had some responsibility in helping care for them, just being the eldest eldest son. He grew up in a culture whose primary focus was faith and family. Although the, the Bible and prophecy speaks very little about Jesus' childhood, you actually can read Luke 2, and it goes from verse 41 to 52, and it reveals a story when Jesus was only 12 years old that gives us a glimpse of our Savior's dedication to God, even at that extremely early age. So Jesus and his parents, Joseph and Mary, traveled to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. After a day of traveling on the road back to Nazareth, where they lived, they realized that Jesus wasn't with them. If you are a parent, you can only imagine what that probably felt like. So they returned to Jerusalem and searched for three days before they actually found Jesus in the temple. And he was sitting among the teachers, listening and asking questions and engaging with these elders, these these teachers of the word. It was said that anyone who heard Jesus was absolutely amazed by his understanding and his answers. When confronted by his parents, a 12-year-old Jesus said, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Even in his youth, he understood his destiny and had an uncharacteristic, unexplainable wisdom. And that's an amazing story to think of. We don't often think of Jesus the child, but he was already on his path. So, of course, he had about three years of ministry that we, of course, call the New Testament, or or at least part of the New Testament. And it paints probably the clearest picture of who Jesus was as a person, directly from those who knew him best, the apostles. He was meek, but he was also a very strong leader, and he had this unearthly focus on his purpose. They explained that he was kind, gentle, empathetic, and generous to everyone. The major belief of Christianity, of course, is that Jesus was sinless, and to date there still is no proof or accounts of Jesus sinning. There are many, many accounts of Jesus' miracles and kindness. Most of all, he was loved. The prophets and historical accounts describe him as plain-looking, but he had a charisma that drew large crowds and captured complete attention from everyone he met. Of course, we know Jewish leaders during that time, they didn't know him, the person, but they described him as a blasphemer and a liar. Now, Roman historians described him as having a, a godly and captivating presence. 
the way his message spread, among other things, was his miracles. Imagine if you had a neighbor whose child had never walked. The child is outside your house running with his friends and tells you that a man named Jesus simply touched his legs and he stood up and ran off to play. I mean, I know that would capture my attention. So I can only imagine that these stories were passed on for generations. So it's, it's difficult to explain Jesus without sounding like I'm exaggerating, but that is exactly who he was on earth. He was the most perfect person to ever walk on the planet with a reason. His only anger came from those who profaned his father's word or used his father's temple to take advantage of faithful followers. He showed us complete submission to God when he prayed for deliverance from the cross, but then he turned around and, and put his own suffering aside. If actions speak louder than words, then Jesus' life was filled with love of mankind, and he showed it in every step that he took. So what exactly was his purpose on earth? Before Jesus, sins were forgiven through the sacrificing of innocent, flawless animals. The cost of sin, of course, is death, and these animals took the place of the sinner on the altar. In the key was to pick the best of your flock, present the sacrifice in your home on what we now call Palm Sunday, and then sacrifice it on Good Friday, the day before the Sabbath. The question of Jesus' perfection is more a question of faith and understanding. As the Messiah, his full purpose was to be perfect. He had to be innocent. He had to be the innocent sacrifice for the sins of man. He would have to be the best of the flock from man, flawless and innocent. No earthly man can fill this kind of void or this role. So that's why the Messiah really had to come from heaven. Although being perfect is hard to understand, and I know it is, if he wasn't, he wouldn't have been the Messiah. And our salvation would not be guaranteed through his perfect sacrifice. It would have been like sacrificing a sick or, or lame lamb. So Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the same as the presentation of the sacrifice in the Old Testament. And he was crucified on Friday, or sacrificed on Good Friday, just like previously done with sacrificial animals the day before the Sabbath. By doing so, he successfully replaced the Old Covenant with the perfect sacrifice and the redemption of mankind. So he then conquered death, buried our sins in the tomb, and then rose again. So the price of sin is death because you can't enter the perfection of heaven tainted. It's too pure. So Jesus took the burden of death away from us so that we may enter heaven with him. Our only requirement is faith in him, faith that he is the Messiah, and to open our hearts to his presence so he can begin preparing our souls for what's to come after this life. Basically, Jesus died for you and only asks for your faith and your love in return. Why? Because he's love, pure, unconditional, move mountains to reach you kind of love. So a very contemporary question has come up recently. I wouldn't even say recently. It, it's been batted around for a while, but it's questioning Christ's existence, his very existence. It's not really been a question throughout history because so much evidence was available that there was little doubt that Christ lived and was crucified. At least those two facts have been so well documented in the past that no one's really questioned it. 
But 2,000 years ago, I guess, can shade the facts when some are in search of a theory over the well-documented truths. Countless Romans, Jewish, and Christian historians have documented the life of Jesus Christ. And only now, as the world is drastically changing, do we begin to question the very existence of the most significant figure in history. You have to understand their tactic for questioning. They're questioning the original documents. Many of the reference documents are no longer in existence simply due because of their age, or sometimes they were even deemed irrelevant years later. As an example, the official report by Pilate. To the Roman Empire, this was just another crucifixion. Therefore, the accounts by the Roman prefect were not properly preserved. However, they were referenced by Roman historians less than a hundred years after the life of Jesus. These historians were not Christian, nor did they even speak highly of the Christian movement. However, they did record the life and death of Jesus Christ. Historians reference the official reports by uh, Pontius Pilate, They reference the census documents because Romans kept extremely accurate census data. They physically held these things and took an interest in this historic event because the Christian movement was such a significant concern to the Romans during this time period as it was growing in Rome itself. But there is a movement to discredit these as unsubstantiated claims. In reality, the writings by these officials and historians is kind of like going to your local courthouse today and getting your to get your birth certificate, and instead they give you a certified copy. Since it's not the original document, does that mean that you weren't born or that you don't exist? Of course not. In fact, the certified copy is considered just as authentic as the original document, probably more legible, but they want to discredit it because it's not the original document. Historians, their job is to preserve history. So even when these documents written on paper that's not even as durable as today's paper disintegrate just over 2,000 years, the historian, it's, it's their duty to preserve this information, to continue to rewrite it, to keep it intact for basically for future generations to refer to. to, refer to. So we ask, why are historical accounts questioned? Writing off these historical accounts is basically manipulating the facts to serve another purpose. It's an attempt to discredit the life of Jesus Christ. With countless historical accounts of Jesus' life, eyewitnesses, the Bible, and of course, just some use of common sense, all these things prove that Jesus walked the earth. Even other bodies of faith Jewish and Muslim followers, they they don't deny Christ's existence. So now, how do we know that Jesus was the Messiah? So let's take a deeper look at the actual prophecy. It's kind of, how do you prove that someone from 2,000 years ago is the Son of God, came to earth in human form for the redemption of mankind? This is a question only God can answer. And with his divine forethought, he that's exactly what he did. We call the miracle prophecy, because there is no way for a man to see into the future. Therefore, if he accurately depicts future events, it must be divinely inspired or beyond our understanding. The prophecies of the coming Messiah are throughout the Old Testament and range from small and vague details to extremely specific and absolutely uncontrollable events. God covered every angle 
using the most trusted men of their time to share these prophecies so they would be recorded and referenced. Hundreds of years, and in some cases, a millennia, before the birth of Jesus Christ, prophets provided us details of the coming Messiah. These range from the small, of course, to the complex, like his hands and feet would be pierced. That's in Psalms 22.16. This psalm was written an estimated 500 years before the first crucifixion, and that is a millennia before Jesus Christ was crucified. The Old Testament prophetic writings contain an estimated of, they estimate roughly about 400 or so total prophecies um, of the coming Messiah. The only prophecies that have not been fulfilled or discussed in Revelation during the second coming of Jesus. All remaining prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus Christ in the first century. From being born to Bethlehem, being betrayed, crucified, spat upon, his lineage to David and Abraham, performing miracles, the foretelling of John the Baptist, casting lots for his clothing, the destruction of the temple, the rising on the third day. That's just a few. That's a handful. So in order to prove that he was the Messiah, we do have to go a little deeper because obviously you can't, you know, people aren't just going to take your word for it. There was a mathematical probability study performed to see what the chances were that Jesus could fulfill all these prophecies. As an example, the probability of any random man in this region being born in Bethlehem, considering the current population of the time, it would be roughly about 1 in 300,000. To fulfill that prophecy, there's a very low chance, but still, it's better than winning the lottery, and we still buy lotto tickets, or some do. But I will say, Christ didn't just fulfill this one prophecy. He fulfilled hundreds. So let's look a little deeper. The study went a little further, and looked at what if he fulfilled only eight of the prophecies. For one person to fulfill eight prophecies, the chance of success is estimated to be one out of ten to the 17th power. You have the chance of one out of out of 10 to the 17th power. That's 17 zeros. So I don't actually know what that number would be looking at it. As the article mentions, this number is equivalent to covering the entire state of Texas with silver dollars, two feet deep. Then, without looking, you can travel anywhere in, in the state of Texas, but you can only pick one, mark, one silver dollar, and it's the likelihood of you picking that one marked silver dollar. That's the likelihood of him fulfilling eight of the prophecies that were up to a thousand years before he was born. In perspective, your odds of winning the Mega Millions jackpot is 1 in 302,600,000, okay? So that number would have, equivalently speaking, it would have roughly, let's see, six, seven, eight zeros instead of 17. So that should give you an idea of the difference in probability. And honestly, looking at the number, the difference between these two numbers, it almost makes it look like you have a chance to win the lotto, just because they're so significantly different. So we're going to take that one more step further. So now that we can see the near impossibility that Jesus could fulfill eight prophecies that he did fulfill, let's do the math and consider the chance of one man fulfilling 48 prophecies. Now, given that's not even half of the total prophecies, probably not a quarter, 
of the total prophecies already fulfilled by Jesus. If you're thinking it's a really remote chance, that's an understatement. The chance of Jesus fulfilling 48 biblical prophecies prophesied before he was born is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That number contains 157 zeros. Okay, so let that sink in. You know, you'd need basically a sheet of paper to write all the zeros. Going beyond that is absolutely incomprehensible. So for perspective, scientists estimate, estimate that there are 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. That's only 23 zeros, 157 zeros. And then we consider the number of stars to almost just be intimate because there's just too many. And they estimate that it's only 23 zeros, 200 billion trillion. The only conclusive way to justify these highly improbable statistics is if the prophecies were visions directly inspired by an omnipotent God. It's only possible if God already knew exactly what was going to happen and gave the prophets the vision. Then, of course, the, the probability is 100% because God knows what's going to happen. You may be asking, okay, that's a lot of numbers. Why does all this matter? It matters because God always makes the impossible possible. In a time that had the opportunity to witness Jesus and hear firsthand accounts, it was much easier for them to have faith in what he performed, because they got to see it firsthand. But God knew that 2,000 years later, while we're questioning even the existence of Jesus Christ, we would have to rely on historical accounts and our own logic. Jesus didn't come here to hide his, his works and, and leave no trace. He came here to make an impact, to change the world and give faith to a wavering people. The only requirement to see the proof is willingness. So where do we go from here? Well, if I had to give a recommendation to the unbeliever, for those researching and learning more about Christianity, I can tell you that Christ makes the impossible possible. The likelihood of him becoming the prophesied Messiah has less chance than disproving a scientific law like gravity. But he did it, and we have evidence of it. Christianity is seeing the 100% chance that God will fulfill his promises, even when science tells us it isn't possible. Once you realize that God does not break his promises, it opens your eyes and heart to his promises to you. These promises include salvation, eternal life, unwavering love, and a peace within your soul. In the beginning, we simply look at the facts, then take a step of faith toward him by accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior, asking for forgiveness, and putting our full faith and trust in him. But it's understandable that you have to have that context before you do that. So if you're seeking more and you're past that stage of looking for evidence and confirming God's truths and want to take your step of faith towards God, we highly encourage you to reach out to a local pastor or even just a Christian friend that you trust. If you would like to ask us questions or learn more about how to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, please drop us an email you can go to our contact page on our website. You can message us on Facebook, Instagram, any way that you can get in touch with us because we want to help you take those first steps. I promise you that Christianity doesn't, we don't have a salvation quota. 
We just want to help because we know that God loves you. We love you. And we're very confident that God will do great things with your life. So if I had to speak to the believer, for those of us whose faith is set on the cornerstone of salvation, I know none of these numbers matter anymore. The odds are never against God, and we know his promises to us. But sometimes we can't just preach at individuals. We must use any information at our disposal to reaffirm our faith, then share these proofs with others who are struggling to take that next step. Coming up to someone who doesn't know Jesus and expecting them to just jump in head first is not the way to reach the newest generations. These generations are logical, intellectual, and philosophical thinkers. They want to ask questions, understand why you follow Jesus, and what things you struggle with day-to-day as a Christian, and how God sees you through those struggles. So be the example. God is a part of you, and you are a part of God. God wants you to be his hands, his heart, and his voice to spread his truths to others around you. So use God's proofs to reaffirm what you already know and live by the perfect example. God only asks that we plant the seeds and tend the fields, and he will reap the harvest. So just to wrap up, I like to wrap up with a little story, and one really affected me this week. My youngest son, Charlie, was putting my oldest son's rain boots on one afternoon. Of course, JP started grabbing at his boots, as brothers do, and I had to explain to him that, hey, this is an honor. Charlie is wanting to put on your boots because he wants to be like his older brother. I told JP that he used to put on my boots all the time when he was younger. He took a moment, as you know, a five-year-old will, to think and kind of let that sink in. And then he said probably the most wise thing from a five-year-old. JP asked me if sometimes I try to put on Jesus's boots. It just left me speechless. If you ever wonder who Jesus is, know that he is our perfect example. His boots, or more accurately, probably his sandals, are much too big to fill. But that shouldn't keep us from trying them on and walking around from time to time just to feel his presence. Let's learn from the man that made the impossible possible, the Messiah that defeated his enemies through love, humility, submission, wisdom, and complete unwavering faith. So our Easter mission As we go out on our Easter weekend to enjoy the smiling faces of our children, fill our tables with food and family, and wear our pastel colors, let's also make a choice to wear Jesus's boots. Help others in need. Be slow to anger and pour out your love to everyone. God gives you free will, so you have to make that choice. So choose to be God's proof that it only takes faith the size of a mustard seed change the world. Trust in God, and he promises he will be with you every step of the way. Thanks for listening today. I sincerely hope that you're able to take something away from this podcast that adds encouragement to your faith. If you're searching for more, we have a number of Christian articles, Christian captions, memes, conceptual photography, and even a free beginner's photography course and blog. They're all available for free on our website, 711photography.com. Remember to spell out the seven, but leave the 11. So until next time, this is Christ in Focus, where we create images and messages to inspire the soul.